Hello and thank you for tuning in once again to the Reptile Living Room. As always, I'm your host, John F. Taylor. And as always, we are brought to you by the wonderful and lovely Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos. You can check her out for all of your captive care needs or captive geckos in the Colionics, uh, Nephurus, and African Fat Tail, as well as Leopard Gecko species. She's a wonderful lady, GoldenGateGeckos.com. Definitely give her a tumble, check her out, tell her we said hi. And without further ado, we're going to jump right into our interview today uh, with Carl Barden of Medtoxin and Incorporated and Reptile Discovery Center. Uh, tonight we're talking about uh, venom, which is, of course, one of my favorite topics, as most of you who uh, know me know me personally, or <clears throat> anyone who knows me personally knows that venom is uh, a big thing of mine. I'm a venom junkie uh, forever now. And uh, talks about uh, collecting venom, some of the legislation involved with uh, venom collection. Um, doesn't go into any techniques or anything like that because, well, it's just safer that way. <laughs> and uh, he just talks to us about, uh, you know, properties of venom, uh, how it's used. Uh, like I said, the legislation, just a, a really, really in-depth interview with Carl in regards to venom collection and uh, working with venomous animals the whole nine yards. So, without further ado, here is Carl Barden of Medtoxin Incorporated. Today we're on the phone with uh, Carl Barden of uh, Medtoxin Labs, as well as uh, Reptile Discovery Center. And Carl, basically the first question we usually ask all of our guests is, you know, how did you even get into reptiles at all? Uh, John, probably like most of your guests, I started out as a kid, mm-hmm. uh, five or six years old, and one of my older brothers used to bring home uh, I grew up in the Northeast, and one of my older brothers used to bring home garter snakes and snapping turtles and that kind of stuff, and, and I, I got really fascinated with the animals themselves at that very early stage of the game. Oh, very nice. And my parents were not really pet people. We didn't have dogs or cats or any of that stuff, but they were very encouraging uh, with the reptiles throughout really most of my life, so that was a, a big help. Okay. And what was the uh, first reptile species that you can remember keeping in captivity? Oh, I think, again, probably like many people, garter snakes were my first ones. And mm-hmm. uh, I kept the eastern garter as a kid. And, oh, I can remember feeding it goldfish that we would get at the local uh, pet store. And, and fortunately, we had a local pet store that was kind of a reptile enthusiast, so he always had a bunch of animals from different parts of the country there. This was in the early 70s, and there were guys collecting for him then, and I'd get in there and be able to see rat snakes and uh, bull snakes and assorted garter snakes and water snakes. And so, But that first snake was a garter snake, and then from there I kind of graduated into water snakes and rat snakes, and all of those guys uh, kind of gave me my start. Oh, okay. Now, are you, uh, do you do any breeding now, or is it just the uh, uh, Discovery Center that uh, is major uh, well, part of the operation? Between the Discovery Center and the laboratory itself, we are typically housing somewhere between 800 and 1,000 snakes. It, oh, it boy. goes up and down just a little bit. But so it, 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 they're pretty fair numbers, and only a small percentage of that anymore is non-venomous. But mm-hmm. we still have rat snakes and king snakes, even a couple of garter snakes and water snakes, and uh, Denise, my, my co-worker, often is working on breeding projects with some of the non-venomous uh, snakes, corn snakes and ball pythons and that kind of thing. And okay. some of those animals we even sell in our gift shop. So oh, very nice. We try and get people started, yeah, at, at a young age if we can as well. Sure. Now, how did the Reptile Discovery Center come about, or did Medtoxin come first and then the Reptile Discovery Med Center? Medtoxin came first. I, oh, okay. uh, <clears throat> I actually moved to Florida in the early uh, 1980s, and I went to work as a zookeeper at the Central Florida Zoo. And, and I had had my eye on venom production uh, my whole adolescent life. I saw Bill Haas. <clears throat> excuse me, of the Miami Serpentariums on TV. Wow, When I was okay. just a kid, he was on 60 Minutes one night catching cobras. And right. At that point, I had some rat snakes, and my dad called me in and said, you, you have to come and see this guy. And I can remember thinking, that's the plan. <laughs> then it was really just a matter of how to execute it. So once I got work as a zookeeper, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, both George Van Horn uh, of the Reptile World Serpentarium, who was producing venom and had started under Haas, and mm-hmm. uh, then later on, Bill Haas. And so I, I started down this path of a, 
a venom laboratory, and, and, and I was going to produce venom and collect venom, and, and it, it kind of started slowly after I got out of the zoo field. I went back to college, and at the same time, I got all my flight ratings, and I began to work as a pilot, and I used the, the pilot job to support the venom lab. And that went on for a long Whoa. time, about, about 15 years of professional flying as I was building the venom laboratory. And I always had my eye on opening to the public. I, I had been not only to, to the Miami Serpentarium as a kid, but I had also been to Reptile World Serpentarium when I was working at the zoo. And so I, I knew there was an, an avenue to, to, to get this work, so to speak, out to the public where people could come and see venom extraction. And so a whole lot of things came together all, all at once that kind of facilitated that jump. So the Venom Laboratory was first, almost 15 years of running that before I actually opted to build the additional part of the Serpentarium and open to the public. Okay. All right. Now, um, <clears throat> as far as the Venom collection there at the labs and uh, things of that nature, how does that all, I mean, how does that work being... <laughs> I mean, because a lot of people dream about working with venomous animals, but sure. you've taken it to a whole other level now. Sure. <laughs> um, well, the venom production part of it, uh, venom production is a, is a strange little niche business. Right. Um, there are only a handful of us in the United States, and, and one of the reasons for that is it is um, the market is tiny. It's an ex exceptionally limited uh, product. Mm -hmm. in terms of your availability in, in to actually move it. Snake venom is not typically in big demand. Um, in fact, it can be very, very difficult early on to be able to sell your product at all. And um, we have always found that you, you have to have some other method of income in order, at least in the early years, in order to uh, support the venom business, so to speak. And if you talk to any of us, and, and Bill Haas included, most everybody had some additional means of income, certainly early on, so that they could continue to grow their collection and, mm -hmm. and, and finally, you know, find these avenues, find the market for your venom, and, and, and finally begin to make it profitable. And that, for us, or for me personally, was a, a, almost a 20-year process. And, oh and I had set it up so that while I was flying, I knew my venom lab couldn't go out of business because I, I wasn't counting on the money. I was making my money working full-time at another occupation while I built the lab and, and continued to increase our collection and that kind of thing and continued to increase our market presence just ever so slightly. And mm -hmm. so it's a very difficult business to break into. And as you might guess, John, there are a whole host of other challenges there. Safety, of course, is a Oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine. And liability is a major concern, and um, uh, legalities are a major concern. And so jumping all of those hurdles was something that I did very slowly over a long period of time. And as I said, I was set up in a manner financially that, 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 that I could afford to take you know, big breaks where we weren't selling venom or weren't making a lot of money or we could absorb the cost of a snake bite when they happened. And mm -hmm. so it was a very long, slow process. And, and most people will tell you, um, if I look back at what I've actually invested in the business to get it to the point that we're at, <laughs> I, I, probably, I probably could have retired in a whole different method if I had done something different with that money. But... Anyway, uh, that, that had been the plan, as I said, since I was a little boy, and, and so I kept at it, and, I, and right. I, I continued to learn, and I continued to work very hard, and I continued to, as I said, I worked two jobs for almost 20 years, and so, so it was a long time coming. certainly wasn't an easy thing to, to get off the ground. Right, right. That is just, yeah, because like you said, even the legalities and, you know, ne I can't imagine the permitting plus, right. you know, everybody's in, you know, and this isn't discounting what, you know, the government or local agencies are doing, you know, because they're ensuring other people's safety, but, you know, it seems like everybody and their mother has to come in and inspect your facility right. to own anything that, you know, potentially and that, and might be dangerous. probably going to get worse. Right, you right. You know, those, those things, as we watch what's happening with, with uh, well, the environment in general, and of course the keeping of exotic animals, and 
all of those things factor into this picture. There's no question about that. Yeah, now that's what, something I wanted to ask you about. How does the current litig litigation uh, there in Florida, um, obviously you're not breeding, you know, Burmese pythons or anything like that, or maybe you are, but, <laughs> right, you know, right. you're, that's not the uh, mainstay of your business. But, right. you know, this legislation is going to have an effect on all of the herpeticulture community and, you know, how does that affect, is that going to affect uh, med toxin or reptile well, discovery center um, at all? you know, with the venomous stuff, uh, we tend to be out in the forefront of that uh, legislation, and okay. we're typically aware of what the state's concerns are, and right. uh, in some instances, we've even been able uh, to be included in some of those conversations. Oh, wow. Uh, what their what their goals are, what their concerns are, what they're what they're hoping or trying to do, as, as you know, John, Florida is a big reptile state in, in virtually every way. We, are, sure. we, we have a, a large amount of natural fauna, we have a large amount of introduced fauna, and we have lots of the biggest breeders and or dealers uh, in the country, perhaps even the world, many right. of them are in Florida. So the, the upside of that is um, there tends to be an awful lot of people tuned in uh, very closely to the legislation, what's happening. Um, what they're doing, many of those same individuals, many of whom are friends of ours, are uh, have an active voice in government. They've either been solicited to give their input or they have made their voices heard uh, mm -hmm. in other ways. And so we always feel like Florida is, in fact, often on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. And, and some of the models that they have adopted or implemented are actually uh, excellent models mm -hmm. for other states or other parts of the country in terms of managing large numbers of exotic fauna. So individually, uh, you know, we are always aware of what's happening um, in terms of venomous legislation, and of course we're licensed by the state and inspected by the state, Right. and uh, we maintain a pretty close relationship with the state, and mm -hmm. now that we have opened the center to the public and actually become an exhibitor, um, it has also brought some of the other areas of legislation which were not so much a part of the Venom Lab picture, uh, more a zoological institution, right. but now we've entered that realm as well. So we always really try to follow the letter of the law. We try and be a good example. We try mm -hmm. and be a uh, concerned but active uh, ingredient, if you will, or, or a part of whatever's happening. And and so far, we've had pretty good luck with that. Uh, we, we, we like to think that we do a good job from a legal standpoint. We have um, several uh, lawyers that are actually consultants on our staff so that we can have constant legal advice and constant mm -hmm. legal input. And, and at the same time, uh, we are voices always available to the state or anybody who might be interested in terms of, okay, this is what we think should be happening from a venomous standpoint. And Florida has seemed to, to, to do a pretty good job with all of that. Okay. So, yeah, so I hope that answers that. It's, yeah, very uh, definitely. Okay. Now, how do you stay on top of, you know, venomous legislation? Because it seems like every time you turn around, no matter what state, whether it's Florida, California, Washington, you know, wh wherever, yeah. it's like all these little things can get changed on, you know, like, for instance, in California, we have to have, a uh, fishing license in order to take any type of reptiles and then it's like every so often it's like you'll go back and you'll read it like a couple years later and just a minor thing has changed about you know okay you can only collect seven you know western fence lizards and last year right. it was ten you know and once again not discounting what the state is doing but they always tell you you know ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law how do you guys keep up on all this stuff well um, th there's a couple of methods, and it still sometimes catches us off guard. Right. So I have to say that the state has done a uh, reasonably good job of sending us, anytime you are a license holder or a permit holder, mm -hmm. the state typically sends us uh, a correspondence, a letter stating that they are about to make the proposed, or these are the proposed changes. Mm -hmm. And often there is a website to access that information and or respond to it, which is a, which is a wonderful attitude. Oh, okay. 
And not only that, our local inspector, uh, who we see fairly frequently, probably every other month or so, also keeps us abreast of changes. Oh, very cool. So that's a help. And then because we have so many uh, reptile friends involved in a million different aspects oh, of right. the industry. <laughs> yeah, you know, Denise is really amazing at this in terms of social networking. She's right. right on top of that stuff all the time. So she gets a lot of feedback via Facebook, via, and we'll get those that kind of information. Hey, this is out there floating around, either federally or at the state level. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, um, it, it, this may impact you, this may... So, so it's kind of a... It, it, there's active and passive methods both of obtaining right. information, and we're lucky because we live it, and so consequently we get a lot of feedback in that neighborhood. Right, right. So okay. it's been good, yeah. That's awesome. Now, as far... And this is, you know, I'm sure you've answered this question a million and one times, but our <laughs> listeners are going to ask. That's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> have you ever... Uh, been envenomated and by what? Uh, sure, it's a, it's a question we get all the time. Exactly. I, I have 11 snake bites uh, that I count, John, and that okay. means that had some kind of um, uh, we had some kind of medical challenge or intervention, right. whatever the case may be. And in fact, we left today, March 26th, is the 18th anniversary of my first cobra bite, which put me on a ventilator for 14 hours and almost killed me. So. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of a, 18 is kind of an odd year, but it's kind of a special day Anytime I get past that, and, and there hasn't been a cobra bite since, so maybe we're getting a little better at something. But I've had 11 snake bites um, over the past 20 years almost, or 18 years, and uh, that's almost 300,000 venom extractions. Might even be just a little bit better than that now. I would have to look. But so the safety record is reasonable, uh-huh. although it's still 11 uh, more snake bites than I would like to count. Oh, sure. And um, we, uh, let's see, I can, I, let me see, I've had uh, black mamba, green mamba, West African green mamba, monocle cobra, uh, three eastern diamondback bites, green tree viper, uh, Mojave rattlesnake, cottonmouth, and Copperhead, and I think that should be 11. We're wow. right in there somewhere. And now, now we have this added problem where I am uh, hypersensitive to venom. I've developed an allergy to it. It's Uh-oh. somewhat common in venom workers. Right. And it presents a real challenge for us because even what might be a very uh, minor snake bite, in fact, can turn into a completely lethal situation for us because we have this terrific allergic event. Right. So that, that's been a problem. We, I have, uh, we have uh, medicine, of course, for all of that. We use epinephrine and Benadryl, and we have an airway set up with medications that are actually aerosolized into my airway to keep my throat open. And mm-hmm. But even with all of that, I am typically unconscious in just four or five minutes despite the application of all of those those right. allergy meds, and then, of course, we have to treat the bite. But we maintain a very, very close relationship with our local emergency room staff. Mm-hmm. We host all of the new doctors that come into the group. We host the hospital group twice a year so they can come out for free and see what we're doing and get a tour of the lab and understand the venom applications and that we're not just some kind of, uh, you know, adrenaline junkie. Right. And uh, so we want to make sure they can appreciate the fact that this is a legitimate occupation and there is, in fact, a, a need for it. And so anyway, so we, we've gotten through these things. And, mm-hmm. and thank goodness they've occurred kind of over a reasonable time span so that we were I was able to absorb them not only physically but financially. And uh, But Snakebite continues to be a... It's a daily concern. We are always uh, reevaluating our safety procedures. We've implemented a lot of my old aviation background safety procedures. We've actually implemented those into our work in the lab. We use all kinds of checklists. We use daily uh, briefings. We use safety briefings. We so we we do everything we can, and we've been good and safe. I haven't had an accident now in five years. So that's almost so oh, probably sixty thousand extractions and maybe a little bit more than that, and, and we've been good and safe. So it can be done for long periods of time without an accident. Right, right. Yeah, because, you know, it's like, it's almost inevitable that it's going to happen because, you know, you're handling a snake and you're extracting venom. 
and there's no way to, you know, you can't just put a cup in the, in the enclosure and go, here, can you bite that for me? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's funny, we had somebody telling us that maybe they could train our snakes to do that, and, and we were, we, we teased this individual all the time because we, we were not quite sure that could be done, but, but right, you, we always think as soon as you begin to put your hands on a venomous snake, it's, it's one thing to keep them and manage them and hook them and move them, but as soon as you begin, you're, you're, you're deciding that I'm going to actually interact with this animal physically. Right. Uh, your chances of an accident increase a hundredfold. Right. We, we uh, steer almost all of our venomous enthusiasts and keepers away from putting their hands on the animals. It, it, it's stressful to the snake, and it's hugely more, uh, or, or, or just hugely dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so we always think that. Once you start picking things up, although... <clears throat> I'm not certain that this couldn't be done forever without a bite, but I personally don't know anybody, anybody with big numbers that we know who's handling snakes has had an accident. Yeah, I've so, never heard of anyone myself either. Right, it does seem to be part of the, the equation. Right, right. But they're a challenge. Embarrassing, and they're expensive, and they're painful, and they're frightening, and they're, uh, there's, a, there's, snake, there's nothing good about snake bites. That's no, no, definitely. Definitely not. Now, one of the things that uh, one of our uh, listeners was asking in regards to uh, venom was um, they understand that, you know, some people are immune to certain types of venoms. Do um, we know? Well, well I, uh, uh, let me expand on that a little bit. Okay, fantastic. Um, some people do actively unite. And I think there's probably about a dozen people currently in the U.S. We know probably half of those. And um, they do seem to achieve a certain level, I'm never going to say complete, but Mm -hmm. a certain level of immunity to certain venoms or certain venom components. Okay. But I always think it's a, it's a, it's a, we have to be very careful in terms of saying, is someone immune, or are you immune, or can you develop an immunity? Okay. I think it's a, yeah, the clear way, to, or, the, or the careful way to state it, I should say, probably, is can you develop some level of immunity? And the answer to that question seems to be probably. Okay. That's fair enough. Yeah, that I like that probably because yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, we certainly I'm not willing to test things. that theory. Right, and you know, I mean, Bill Haas, there is no question that he had developed a significant level of immunity to uh, many, many different snakes. However, uh, Bill would be the first one to tell you he still had some terrible snake bites over the years. Right. Uh, despite you know a, a significant level of immunity a- and all the active immunizers that we currently know um, who are doing, you know, who are working with uh, significant amounts of elapid venoms and, and injecting, uh, in some cases, tremendous amounts of toxin, mm-hmm. still have some, uh, A, very serious snake bites and still have some very serious reactions to that, uh, that course. It, it is not something um, that we advocate or recommend or suggest to anybody, and, and we don't immunize. Um, it's funny because the several people I know in the venom field who are large-scale producers, mm-hmm. uh, none of us immunize. So um, it does beg a little bit of a question, I suppose. But but yeah. there is certainly some real science to it, and there is some interesting things going on. And and some <coughs> of the guys that are doing some of that are actually good friends of ours. And and when they tell us some of the stories, <laughs> it, it piques our interest, and it's certainly something we intend to look at more with some immunology people, and just from a science standpoint. Right, much. right. Just from a science standpoint. It is fascinating. <clears throat> now, um, one of the other uh, listeners was asking about drinking venom. Yeah. And my and uh, another uh, listener actually answered kind of partially and I agree with it, and you can tell us if we're, you know, completely out of the ballpark here, but our understanding is that if you drink venom, it it might potentially make you sick, but it actually uh, has to get into the bloodstream and actually to have an effect. Well, we've, we've seen, uh, I think, uh, overall, your the, the general uh, tone of your sentence there is probably correct. Okay. 
in that, yes, you can drink small quantities of venom. Um, uh, ooh, how do I want to say it? Once or twice, maybe, with little or no effect at all. Okay. Um, we do know of one particular uh, group of, of scientists that was drinking very small quantities of venom for a long period of time, and they, in fact, experienced some very uh, adverse problems, some ah. ulcerization in their, or uh, uh, lesions in their esophagus, and some problems in their mouths. And wow. um, so we've kind of decided that, yeah, you know, your stomach acids are capable of amazing things, and, you know, snake venom toxins are little biological components. They do break down. Right. And, um, you know, you can, I think there's something running around on the Internet now, somebody mixing up some rattlesnake venom and drinking it in the glass with no ill effects. And I don't know how much venom it was, but, again, it probably can be done in small quantity without much trouble. But, again, we wouldn't advocate it. Right. We don't think it's a good idea. There's no question that these little uh, biological molecules are active and they're toxic and they are not good for you and they are not meant to be in your body through any method of introduction. Right, and right. so it's probably just, a, you know, I can't think of a, a possible good reason for somebody to do it. Why would anybody do that? Well, I think the reason it actually came up and generally comes about out in conversations is because people hear stories about, you know, like we were talking about the immunizing yourself. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, that used to be one of the things, you know, and I don't think it actually ever occurred. Right. But Some I think people, you know, just, thinking. exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you know, know in your stomach, you're definitely not going to do yourself any good. In other words, you're not going to do any antibody uh, yeah. production or anything like that. You're simply going to introduce this, this toxic uh, mixture into your into your stomach cavity and, and then hopefully break it down and get rid of it without too much trouble. But but it's a bad idea and um, it, it, we don't see any any medical uh, uh, good coming from any of it. And again, even the immunizers who uh, talk among themselves typically and uh, I, I think some of those guys have some stuff on the internet and Mm -hmm. um, that game is a, is a, I, I probably shouldn't even call it that, but it is a very dangerous thing to be doing. You can, right. A, uh, hypersensitize yourself to all kinds of proteins that you might not otherwise, so you run the risk of a, a serious allergic event. You can misdose, of course, to figure out, you know, your math is wrong, and uh, all of a oh sudden my gosh, you've yeah. introduced a lethal uh, you know, amount of alpha cobertoxin or whatever the case may be. And so anyway, we, we always feel like we, we don't... And, and as to its health benefits, um, there are people in the research community, the medical field, that will tell you that challenging your immune system may have some benefits, but none of that has been proven. And um, we think there's probably a whole lot of other options to stay healthy. Right. Um, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to injecting snake venom. Yeah. We always think, uh... you know, stop eating French fries, and you're, you're probably doing better than. <laughs> so anyway, so so we 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 do scratch our head at some level, and right. it's interesting from a scientific standpoint. But I think even the people who are immunizing, I don't think most of them would advocate any of it. Uh, I know that. You know, I've seen. That we talk to. Yeah, they're they're you know this isn't a good idea kind of thing. Yeah, I've seen one individual, and I don't even remember what the show was on, but he was in there for some reason, uh, talking about you know what he was doing, and he, I mean, just point, just blatantly said, you know, God, no, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. This is, oh, right. you know, this is insane. Right. But I'm working with doctors yeah. on a regular, you know, because he would actually go in and get and get injections from a doctor who yeah. who was doing research and basically. The way I understood it is he was going into the doctor. They were injecting the actual uh, venom itself. Okay. And then later on doing blood uh, extractions and testing his blood to figure out, you know. Yeah, are we seeing anything? Right. Is there anything right. happening? You know, and, and kidney function. Right, right. And, and there was a whole series of and tests and what yeah, have Yeah, well, there, there certainly is some of that anecdotal evidence around. And mm -hmm. it's funny because last year... Uh, Excuse me, John. Last year, for the first time, we actually managed to uh, 
get a genuine immunologist interested in some of this stuff, but he was uh, traveling overseas and it was going to be some time before we could actually uh, get some of the guys immunizing together and some real science people together and look at some antibiotic wow. levels and tighter levels. And so, so it is a project for the future and, and there is some curiosity there, but um, you know, sometimes people will, will cite Bill's uh, Haas reaching 100 and um, but Bill was also into all kinds of other very, very healthy practices, and he also worked 14 hours a day for 60 years, and so I always think that, that all of those things factor in, you know, your build, your heredity, your dietary practice, your exercise habits, your, all of these things were probably part of Bill's longevity picture. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, you know, outside of the venom, and so then, <clears> you know, the, you speculate how much good came from, but it's hard to say. It's hard to say, and it's an ongoing conversation, if anything. Yeah, then yeah. You, again, it could go on and on forever. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> you know? right. Now, what um, what's your favorite species to work with? Oh boy, John. Uh, I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> What inevitably happens is something lands on the collecting table. It's a coral snake or an eastern diamondback, uh -huh. monocle cobra, and, and and almost without fail, every time something gets set out on that table, I think, oh my goodness, look at how cool that is. That's the most unbelievable snake. <laughs> and it's never changed. It's right. been that way from the time I was a little kid. It's still that way. Uh, I mean, we go through hundreds of snakes a week, and, and Time, I am still taken and thrilled, and so I have to say, cur currently I am partial to eastern diamondbacks. Okay. I've always been way up there, and, and I'm very partial to coral snakes lately. They've always been way up there, but but there's so much. I love mambas, I love cobras, I love. It's very hard for me to choose. Right. But right, right now, the, the the current wave, the current trend tends to be easterns and corals. I'm really particularly taken with those two currently. Okay. Now, and speaking of the coral snakes, that's got to be one, you know, and, well, actually, I guess all the elapids um, are a smaller fang species. Yeah. And that, that's got to be some serious, serious work trying to milk one of those snakes. Well, you know, our, our coral snake habits have gotten better and better and better over the years. Uh, George Van Horn was a big help to us there. He has been at it. Uh, much longer than we have and has really been a, a tremendous help uh, to me and to our program. And mm -hmm. um, so we, we have really gotten some what we like to think is reasonable methods down with those guys. We still lose a little bit of venom, which is unfortunate. Sure. But as you said, accruing coral snake venom in quantity is a long, slow uh, I won't say tedious because I find it to be a great deal of fun, but oh, so it sure. takes us somewhere around 100 handlings, 150 handlings, something like that, to a gram, a sweet and low packet of dry coral snake venom. Mm. So it, it, it's, a, it's not something that happens quickly. And, of course, keeping coral snakes alive uh, and doing well, and that took us a long time to get that, that right. down, and we've got a real good system going there now. And, and now <coughs> the next level has been... Denise has been working with raising uh, hatchlings. We have never had any success raising baby coral snakes before. They're very specialized feeders. We tube feed our coral snakes. And, and Denise has been working on this project over the, the course of the past year, and she is successfully raising hatchlings from last season. And, and we're, we're beside ourselves with that. We're so excited about it. The work is uh, magnificent work. It's, it's it's difficult and, and um, requires a tremendous level of patience, but oh she gosh, has yeah. that. And she's, so, so we've gotten, we've got about 60 coral snakes on our venom line now. Most of them are just doing beautifully. A lot of them have been here for close to 10 years. Um, we're really excited about our, our Eastern Coral Snake program. And, and, you know, there are a couple of places on the planet you can access that venom, St. Cloud, George Van Horn, and us. And, um, there aren't a lot of people working with those snakes in, in numbers, and right. so, so we—it's a very special project. It's very close to my heart, and uh, as you may may or may not have heard, there there is a new coral snake antivenom um, currently in in the pipeline, and um, so we're just excited about that whole project. We're we're glad that Pfizer has stepped up to the plate and picked up that product, and mm -hmm. 
we think it's an important thing to have, and, and um, we're very excited about our, our Eastern Coral Tech project. It is something we are extremely proud of, and unfortunately, we were we were lucky enough to get an albino coral snake in here about a year and a half ago. She was the only one that we knew of currently in captivity in the world. Wow. But unfortunately, she died. She ate a little corn snake. We don't know what happened, and two days later, she was dead. So oh, wow. We do have her frozen, but, but anyway, that was unfortunate. But, but that program for us is a big deal. As you can tell, I'm, I, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll stop talking now, but it's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it is. It's slow work, and it's, it's uh, specialized work, and but we're doing it. We're yeah, doing it. Very filling definitely. A, filling a swimming pool with an eyedropper. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> there you go. Now, something that um, I've always been aware of, but a lot of people I don't think are aware of, is when, you know, because you see all, always on TV the Venom collection itself. Yeah. But you never see the after process. And then when you watch shows, um, let's say, for instance, Venom ER yeah. was a great one that actually showed the doctors mixing the Venom. And it never dawned on me until my wife asked me. She's like, honey, why are they rolling the vials like that? And I'm like, well, the venom's dry. Yeah, they have to mix it with the liquid. And she's like, really? I'm like, wow, right. I never right. thought about that. People don't understand well, that there's a, a whole process. Well, a lot are lost on the, the process itself. We still get visitors weekly that say, do you guys make the anti-venom? And right. we always have to explain that we are purely step one. Right. We are one of a number of laboratories that work uh, on several of the antivenom projects. And what a lot of people don't understand is that antivenom is an equine or an ovine, a horse or a sheep, sheep. antibody right. that has been stimulated with whole venom. And mm-hmm. so lots of people don't realize that we are only the first step uh, making the venom available in a very long drawn-out pharmaceutical process, which is stimulating the antibody in a host animal. Mm -hmm. Uh, The United States is currently using sheep, although for the coral snake project, it will still be equine, it will still be horses, and a good part of the world is still using horses. Right, right. And then they immunize those animals over time, draw off that antibody. Uh, The antibody itself is often worked with, um, and as you said, then in many instances, although not always, in many instances, it is then lyophilized, freeze-dried. Mm-hmm. And when the hospital gets antivenom, it's in dry, crystallized form with a bottle of sterile water, 10 milliliters, and they then have to reconstitute that antibody, mm-hmm. which has been frozen, or that fragmented antibody in the case of the United States product, and, and in solution so that it can be injected into an IV bag and then given to the patient. Right. Okay. Um, and you don't want to denature the antibody itself, and so that's the reason they roll it as opposed to it. But, right, that process, one of the things that we do en route to the hospital sometimes is tell the 9-11, that the, 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 the emergency dispatch people to tell the hospital to start mixing the serum. Right. So that when we get there, it's waiting. Right, right. Right. Now, but you're right. A lot of people don't <clears throat> understand any of the process. Right. Now, as far as um, anti-venom is concerned, uh, there is polyvalent and then there, I don't know what the other term Mono is. Monospecific. Monospecific. Okay, very yeah. good. Monovalent and polyvalent. Can you right. explain to our listeners the difference between sure. a polyvalent and a monovalent uh, antivenom? Most of the antivenoms in, available in the world today, not all, but uh, maybe I shouldn't say most, I should say many, okay. are in fact polyvalent serums. And what they do there typically is stimulate uh, antibody from a number of different species. In the United States, it's four venoms that are used in the antibody stimulation. So in the U.S., we use eastern diamondback venom to stimulate antibody in one group of sheep, western diamondback venom to stimulate antibody in one group of sheep, Mojave rattlesnake venom to stimulate antibody in another group of sheep, and finally cottonmouth venom to stimulate antibody in the last group of sheep. So we have four venoms um, that we, or the antivenom people felt, were a solid representation of many of the toxins that are found in North American pit vipers. And those antibodies, which are all produced in separate groups of sheep, are then mixed together. And what you wind up with is what's called a polyvalent antivenom or a polyvalent serum which means there is a mixture of antibodies in that serum 
stimulated from uh, a group of sheep that have been immunized with a number of different venoms. Some of the antivenoms in the world use even more venoms, six, seven, eight in some cases. And there should be antibody in there to all of those venoms, of course, and many other snake venom toxins that would be similar in structure and consequently be neutralized adequately with that antivenom. So they, they will create a product with you, if you will, that has a broad appeal or a broad application rather than, because the, the processing of antivenom is expensive, so rather right. than make an individual serum for each individual snake, which would be a lengthy, unnecessary, expensive process, mm -hmm. they have realized that there is a cross-neutralization and that many of the toxins found in snake venoms are in fact structurally similar, and so they often neutralize with an antibody that is close in structure. And so these polyvalent serums have been around for a long time now, and they've been uh, largely effective. Although, we also know, and this is one of the things that, that you see on Venom ER, Dr. Bush is sometimes challenged with the fact that, 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 that the current antivenom, polyvalent, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't do a particularly good job of neutralizing the Pacific rattlesnake, the northern Pacific, and more importantly, the southern Pacific rattlesnake in California. Right. So Sean is often faced with a situation where he has to administer enormous doses of antivenom, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 vials, right. in order to achieve control of a snake bite. And so in that case, would a monospecific serum be better for perhaps the southern Pacific rattlesnake? Perhaps it would, but, mm -hmm. but it might be so limited in scope, so limited in use, that a, a pharmaceutical company just probably wouldn't be interested in making it. In creating it because there's right. no right. Um, return on investment, so to speak. So, say that again? I said because there's no return on investment. Basically, it's right. not cost-effective exactly. to, And unfortunately, you know. I mean, pharmaceutical companies uh, are often private entities. They are businesses. Sure. They are profit-driven. And so they, they have to make a product that has a broad appeal. And an antivenom in and of itself is a challenge because unlike a pain medication or something that has a universal use, antivenom is a specialized drug. So, mm -hmm. so it has a limited scope and a limited market and a limited et cetera, et cetera. So all of those things factor into this process. But you'll find that across the world there are many, many polyvalent antiserums available, mm -hmm. antivenoms that are made from a number <coughs> of different venoms, as well as, for instance, the, the antivenom that Pfizer will now make for the coral snake is a monovalent antibody. It is made from one species of snake, and it is made really to treat one group of snakes, the North American coral snake. So, wow. so, so that, you know, sometimes you will see an application for a monovalent serum, and they're still out there. Okay. I hope that explains. Oh, yeah, very definitely. It's a common question, and, it, and it's an important, uh, I think it's an important topic to address. I very definitely. Very definitely. Now, one of the things, going back to the coral snake, I know we're talked about it earlier, but <clears throat> just to clarify it a little bit, yeah. um, with your work uh, at MedToxin with the uh, coral snakes that you're working with, you are one of how many actual uh, anti-venom producers? Because I know, it seems to me like I've only, that I've heard of maybe two or three. Okay, maybe? well remember, uh, we don't want to say anti-venom producers, we want to say Oh, venom, sorry, venom I'm venom sorry, producers. venom collection. Right, right, okay. <laughs> Um, right now, in the United States, we see about five or six uh, laboratories that are active. Wow. Um, some of those laboratories, and part of the reason for that is the scope and the market, again, is tiny. So, um, uh, Protherix, the antivenom people, have their own laboratory out in Utah. It's a private facility. Okay. Uh, Texas A&M down at Kingsville, the Natural Toxins Research Center, has a venom laboratory. Um, they are, like any college, uh, they're largely funded by grants and that kind of thing, but I mm. have not visited that facility, but we talk to them frequently, and apparently it's a beautiful state-of-the-art venom laboratory. Um, there are several private laboratories. Jim Harrison, the Kentucky Reptile Zoo uh, in eastern Kentucky. Jim is a friend of ours. Okay. Uh, he's a large-scale venom production facility. George Van Horn, St. Cloud, uh, Biotoxins right. Incorporated, lar large-scale venom production facility. Um, Bill Haas, the Miami Serpentarium Laboratories, is 
still a active Venom Laboratory. Wow. Uh, I don't know what their production setup is. Bill is not doing the production himself anymore, but I'm, I'm uncertain of their setup. But Miami Serpent Serum Laboratory mm-hmm. certainly is still in existence and still selling Venom. Okay. Um, and ourselves, Medtoxin Venom Laboratories. And then um, there is a gentleman who does a lot of the Roundup Venom, Bioactive Incorporated, and, and uh, can primarily produces rattlesnake venom, not exotic snakes, but that is, in fact, an active venom production facility. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there are about right now uh, six of us, something like that, in the country, and, and most of us at one time or another are talking to one another. So, right, right. So I don't think that would, I don't, I don't think it would be possible not to. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such like... a small, and it's funny because on some of these big projects, John, there winds up being uh, plenty of work for all of us. So oh, I can uh, oftentimes we are uh, talking about technique or sometimes just sharing stories. And uh, right. almost all of those individuals are, are uh, either acquaintances or in some cases close personal friends of mine. That's awesome. Man, what an, in- I mean, just what an incredible business and a job to have. I mean, that's just... <laughs> yeah, for us it's really, uh, it's really a wonderful thing, although we laugh. It, it's certainly isn't for everybody and and sure we you know sometimes people think boy what could be better than that but the truth of it is um we often laugh because we think of ourselves as farmers and factory workers we are about keeping the animals alive and production that's really what we do right right and and there's a tremendous amount of plain and simple labor in it um you know, handling hundreds of venomous snakes a day, uh, it's not particularly glamorous. It's, in fact, a tremendous amount of work. Um, we try to pe- never let people lose sight of all of those animals have to be fed and cleaned and cared for. And that's and the biggest thing. So, yeah, production, although we all find it to be quite a bit of fun, uh, the truth is, I'm looking at Denise working in the laboratory as we speak, busy as to be, and the truth of it is there is just a tremendous amount of labor involved. Right. And the other aspect of it is you never really can get away from it. Um, the notion of scheduling a week vacation is, in fact, most of the time a real challenge because nobody else can do the work. Right, and right. So, you know, so there are there are aspects of it that we think, well, you know, what, what, what the public sees, and that's what we hope, is fun and interesting and exciting and maybe a little dangerous. And, but the reality of it is 10 hours a day, yeah. You know, you've got hundreds of snakes to clean and feed and handle. And so anyway, I, I'm not certain it is it is for everybody. Having worked on the zoo side of this for five years, mm-hmm. um, I can tell you that that aspect of the industry is, in fact, uh, often much more pleasant and sure. uh, not quite so labor-driven. Um, and, and so we always fear our young people. We have lots of people come through that are interested in interning or shadowing, or and we always steer them away from venom production, and we steer them toward field work or, or zoo work, which we think is wonderful, and mm-hmm. some of these other aspects of, of herpetology that are not quite so, um, um, what's the word, laborious, I should say. Right. You know, so I always try and paint an accurate there yeah. somewhere around on the internet I don't know where it is but there's a picture of Jim Harrison floating around on, on or maybe I just saw it I don't know but on on Cobra Day and he had oh I don't know handled two or three hundred monocle covers and of course he's covered in in Cobra feces and he, uh, anyway and, and he kind of put it out there to say this isn't so glamorous <laughs> this is what you have to look forward to right exactly it isn't so and goodness gracious lord forbid you miss and you get stuck it, it's just uh it's just not for everybody so yeah we, we enjoy it we all of us really do and there's no other way to do it we always laugh because unless you love it um to the point of obsession right it doesn't work right you know it's just it just doesn't work unless you
to acquire and uh, take care of, yeah. <laughs> what oh would be goodness. the ultimate species of reptile that you would keep? Or have you already done it? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think Denise would probably answer that question with Komodo dragon. Of course. Think, uh, that seems to be a topic of conversation lately. But uh, for me, I probably would have told you years ago, King Cobras and Black Mambas, uh, they're both here in good numbers now. Oh, my gosh. Um, and again, I have fallen so madly in love with some of the, the very plain and very... Uh, you know, we love Eastern Diamondbacks. We love Western Diamondbacks. So for me, fortunately, uh, that part of the economic equation uh-huh. hasn't been a problem. In other words, the, the very species that I just couldn't wait to have my hands on right. are available to me, and they're at reasonable prices, and I can get them, and I do that. That's awesome. Um, I suppose I could answer that question by saying my facility would be ten times its size, and we would have ten times the staff. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that's what I dream about. It. It's just more of the same, but it's more help, and we're bigger, and, uh, and, and, and more people can come and see what's happening and enjoy it. I think that's probably what I dream about. Right. Very good. That's fair enough, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that answers that. Very definitely. Very definitely. And once again, folks, that was Mr. Carl Barden from Medtoxin and Reptile Discovery Center. And once again, we are brought to you by the wonderful and lovely Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos for all of your captive care and captive gecko needs, such as Nephurus, African Fattails, Leopard Geckos, and even the Colionic species. Definitely give her a tumble. Marsha McGinnis at GoldenGateGeckos.com. And once again, we do ask that you drop by, leave some comments in the show notes, uh, on the blogs, uh, herphousemag.com, uh, reptileapartment.com, as well as here at reptilelivingroom.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. And we'll uh, do the best to keep producing our great shows that we do. Mm-hmm.